This is the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. It will be covering a walk from the geographic centre of Australia to the centre of the nation's capital in Canberra to raise awareness of the mental health issues faced by our first responders. We ask a lot of the people in our police, emergency services and all frontline workers. That takes a big toll on them and their families, which is why this walk is happening. These are just everyday people that have to do extraordinary things. These people are just like my dad. Welcome to the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. Today we're actually on location right next to the National Police Memorial in Canberra. And our guest today is a Heart to Heart Walk ambassador. We have Alan Sparks, CVOAMVA. G'day, Alan. G'day, Matt. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, I, I can't tell you how uh, how excited I am to be here of all places with you, uh, having you know only just recently met you and here I am. Uh, it's it, it's mind blowing for me uh, to have to be in your company. Oh, and uh, it's very really humbling, mate. Thank you so much. Yesterday at Parliament House, I heard your uh, your keynote speech, and a lot of what you spoke about hit a lot of chords with me personally. And I could tell by everyone's reaction in the room, uh, I wasn't alone there. So your your take on where we are as a as a nation, or where what. It's certainly attitudinally, but um, your your take on what needs to change in the future for people like myself and yourself, uh, I think, you know, it was exactly what everyone in that room wanted to hear and, and is on board with. And, and I think we're all in agreement. That's the focus and that's where our energy is going. Absolutely. So thanks for being our ambassador. Oh, mate, I'm really honoured to be be part of it. Um, it's it's a really exciting prospect because I I, I see the determination of people like yourself uh, for Paul Milne and Vincent Pennell, Dave Copley, everybody involved with with the project. I just see the passion that's involved and, and it's true genuine belief and determination to make the changes that need to be done. Yeah, and that's that's so special when you have a group of people uh, that that are so committed. And have had their own issues in their, in their life, but but they they put that aside for the benefit of others, and that's that's mm. extraordinary to be part of it. So um, I'm just I just get so um, how just say engrossed in the genuineness of, of of you and all the people involved, and and the project itself. That's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, they're a great bunch of people, and yeah. and um, yeah, like my that's how this whole started out for me. You know, I I found a, a comfort place in listening to other people's podcasts and, uh, you know, when, when the opportunity came up to try and reciprocate that with the Heart to Heart Walks focus, I went, wow, I'm not ready to do this at <laughs> all. Uh, I don't know that I'd ever be ready for it, but it's certainly, uh, you know, where I'm at with uh, my condition, yeah. uh, I, I certainly wasn't ready to do it. But uh, as you said, the greater good and, yeah. uh, you know, you've got to put a lot of that stuff aside and just get on with it. And yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm getting a lot of great feedback from people, which, you know, is really uplifting for me when I hear from someone I don't even know that's, you know, found some benefit in, in one of the podcast yeah. episodes. It's really, it's amazing. But one, one of the things that I just realised when I did my preparation for this recording is you were born in Molong. Yes, in central west New South Wales. And I grew up in a little town called Cumnock. Yeah, that when that blew me away when we talked about that just before starting because what 
uh, probably, I certainly didn't realise it, and uh, you didn't either, is Cumnock is where I started my working life, literally straight out of school. I went and did a rural traineeship out there with Don and Bruce Marriott. Yeah, I think uh, perhaps, Matt, we have more in... Um, more similarities in our life than we yeah. really realise. So, yeah. um, and like like you, I also when I left school went working in the rural industry. And I was a jackaroo, and then went into the shearing sheds and became a rouseabout yeah. and a wool presser, and then started shearing. And I was actually shearing before I um, before I left to join the police force. Wow, at nineteen years of age. So similar. Yeah, actually, I mm. think I got my letter of acceptance to go down to the. Uh, to to let her acceptance to go to the academy while I was down in the shearing shed yep, on yep. Dil- Dilga Station okay, at Cumnock. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's so bizarre. Yeah. I ca- I can't believe that. Well, as I said before, the um the station that I worked on was actually opposite Dilga Station. Yeah, Wave, uh, Wave Hill. The entrances were almost uh, opposite each yeah, other. Yeah, so. that's right. That's yeah. oh wow, that's <laughs> so spooky, bizarre. <laughs> that is wow. That, that really oh, this morning that just blew my mind. I, I tell you. Um, Look, what you talked about yesterday at Parliament House for the official launch of the Hut Hut Walk, I think your view on the perception piece of first responders and inclusive of, of the range that's within that really strikes everybody in that room as one of the key issues that we face is that the perception, the public perception or the recognition of of that and... I'd really love to hear what you've got to like your take on where we're at at the moment and what the future what future changes need to happen. I have always said that the first responders are the most essential element of our society. And and also as a nation we failed to realize the significance of first responders in our society and the contribution that they have made and continue to make. But we just fail to realise just that really without our first responders, we don't have a society. It, it, in my opinion, it would collapse around us. Mm. So if that's the situation, then, then what are we doing to, to protect our first responders from the physical and psychological risks that they face, have been exposed to and suffer from and, and will suffer from? And whilst I recognise that we have a very strong focus on a reactive approach, particularly to psychological injury, I also believe we are failing to address the issue of preparing our first responders for the risks that they will face. And that's what I see as the biggest gap in our whole system is, is educating our first responders to enable them personally and professionally and organisationally to, to combat the risk that they face, particularly their psychological risk. Mm. We will never, ever have enough clinicians' post-trauma care provision if we keep going the way we're going. Uh, we know the rate of attrition, particularly of police officers... Yeah, it's terrible the at the moment. ...is horrific, um, and also in a lot of other organisations. So... If if we can't if we can't provide the services and we and those that are left serving their work, workloads are increasing ever more, mm. then it's just a tidal tidal wave of trauma that uh, is going to be have catastrophic results. Mm. So yeah, so let's let's get fair income about this whole situation and recognise the importance, but make sure that we we 
we care for those that are, that are just so giving of themselves, particularly our volunteer first responders. Uh, I think we as a nation have capitalised on, on, on the quality of the people they are mm. um, and taken them for granted. And that is just, in my view, uh, atrocious mm. and, and completely unacceptable. Yeah, what, what you've just said about the volunteer sector within within those first responders is something I spoke recently to uh, Dr. Dan Pronk about. And, um, you know, he's quite sympathetic to them a, a, as a standout as well because of the fact that it's not their main job. They don't go through like an academy phase of preparation to yeah. do those, to do the roles that they're doing. Sometimes it's actually quite basic, the training that they get. And, you know, you hear these horror stories of their first job you know, they go to is something they'll never forget, unfortunately. And, yeah. and the preparation for that piece um, compared to, say, military service like Dan was talking about is that stress inoculation that yes. they get and that preparation and and setting that expectation, I might get faced with this issue, yeah. um, is not there for them. And, and it become like, yeah, he, he sort of was quite concerned about them in that space, actually. And rightly uh, so. Like, like, like you've pointed out now, yeah. it's, it's not... Um, you know, it's quite identifiable as an issue, I think, and and uh, certainly, you know, the recognition that should go along with what they actually do for free is, uh, you know, it's abysmal, yeah. absolutely abysmal. Yeah. I mean, they, it's it's like a tokenistic form of recognition, and but also an expectation. Well, they'll be there next time we need them mm. because that's what we just expect them to do. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that can only only carry on for so long. You mentioned yesterday about that Australian courage piece. So there was a, you know, the, the courage that's within people to actually serve. Do you think the emergency services sector, first response sector um, and policing, do you think that's a, a specific part or I suppose a specific type of person that's drawn to that type of work? Uh, look, I don't know whether it's drawn to that sort of work, uh, my belief is that the, the essential element of courage is the willingness to care for another. And I see first responders are the greatest examples of courageous people because of their just willingness to care. And it's, and it's not once, you know, just once in their service that they're courageous. You know, if, if you accept my submission as to what courage is, mm. then I think you may also accept that these people are courageous through not only throughout their careers, but as we're seeing with a heart-to-heart walk, we've got men and women who are so courageous because they just care so deeply about others. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think that it is a particular type of person. It's just fortunate that that particular type of person is enabled to be part of the first response yep. sector. Yeah. And and thank God we we have those people. Yeah. And yeah, you know, for example, uh, Tammy, who's involved in the heart to heart, the the challenges that Tammy faces, and and the but the level of care that she is giving to others, is you know she is an extraordinary person. Mm. And this is, this is what I love about the whole thing when you when you are, are with like minded people, but you you absorb their courage. Mm by the sheer fact you know how much they care because they exhibit it all the time. They're proactive about their care. It's it's not like, oh, I just care when I need to be. 
Yeah. That's the people they are. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely not tokenistic like um, – No. And and I think from, from myself it's very um, – it, it generates a lot of energy – just being around those sort of people and, and, and actually makes you check yourself and go, okay, well, you know, what am I doing? And and yeah. there is something different about doing something for other people. There's oh, there is. There is. And, um, you know, as, as we know, Matt, when – as a first responder, when you engage with a person, the odds are not only you changing their life but there are times when we actually save lives. Mm. And that's a, a rare – a rare emotion for most people but as first responders I guess we become a little bit blasé about how much impact we do have on people's lives mm. but no matter how long you are in service as a first responder you will at some stage have a significant impact on somebody's life or lives and that's an enormous power that that you possess um, and it's one that I think you would agree with me that another element of, of first responders is, is their humility Mm. They're such humble people who just go about their work because yeah. that's just what you're supposed to do. Uh, but it's, but again, get this this willingness to care is is so evident. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and actually, that humbleness makes the messaging a little difficult. I've found because some there's some people with amazing stories out there that are so humble they won't tell them or they actually think, oh, well, there's there's much more impressive people out there than yeah. me, so I'm not – why would anyone want to hear my story? And yeah. when you actually find out about them, you're like, yeah. wow, yeah. what an impressive person, you know, and uh, and you would never know. You'd walk past them in the street and you would never know. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I obviously because of the um, of my last 20-odd years, I, I've had the opportunity to engage with many, many people who have actually gone out and saved lives or, or – um, or attempted to save lives, and and as you say, the the, the humility is uh, is is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. And and when you when you find out about what these people have done, you go, oh my god. Yeah. That's just fantastic. It is. Yeah. yeah. It really is mind blowing. So with the heart to heart walk, can you tell us a little bit about your vision as the ambassador for the for the actual walk itself, and and its intentions, I guess. Yeah. When I first was discussing with Vince about the concept of the walk and things. I said, mate, it really reminds me of the old Kui march for the First World War where, like, it started in the bush out in the, in the west of New South Wales and, and men were walking from, basically from town to town um, encouraging people to, to volunteer to go to war. And the, the march just grew and grew and grew and grew. And I said, what, what I see with this walk is it's going to start out in the centre of Australia and men and women will be walking along this this pathway with a goal in mind. We understand that. But along the way, it's going to draw in so many wonderful people who have so much to contribute. I see overall the walk is just a phenomenal opportunity on so many levels and the opportunity to deliver so much to Australians nationally. And one of the key areas I see, it's the ability to educate those along the way yep. about the, how to manage the risks they have faced, will face, or are facing, and to educate outside of those communities 
further and further and further afield. So ultimately, the wharf becomes a national education centre, not so much on the risks that first responders face and the trauma that they may experience, but but how to prepare themselves for it. Mm. So we're shifting the focus from a reactive model of helping people after they're injured. So picking up the pieces, yeah. Correct, to a, a proactive model of helping people empower themselves to take on the risk. Mm. And that's where I see is one of the greatest opportunities that, that we have. Mm. And perhaps shift the focus from a reactive approach to a proactive approach. Yep. We need we need a balance, of course, but at the moment it's a complete imbalance. Mm. Most of it is this reactive model, but we need to shift that to a proactive model. remember yesterday you were talking about, um, I suppose, s- the situations that people in first responder roles face sometimes are ultra, ultra stressful. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Like every, everybody that works in that role long enough will stumble across something they never expected, uh, weren't ready for, weren't trained for, but they've got to get on with it because they're yeah. the only people there. And as you said, like with, if they weren't there, there'd be problems. So yeah. um, thank God they are there. But uh, that if that moment comes along at a time in somebody's life or career that there's a whole bunch of other factors at play uh, at that point in time, that can have a very different outcome or consequence on that person. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that preparatory piece about making sure people don't, or I, I guess identify that or there's a systematic approach to making sure people aren't at that sort of tipping point I guess yeah. where where if they do unfortunately get that event happen, then it, it it is overwhelming for their resilience, if that's the right word, or their their, yeah, their ability to manage it. I, I work with a wonderful clinical psychologist. We run a program called Operational Readiness, particularly for first responders, uh, but also it, it applies to everybody. Mm. But so but, much of this does, doesn't it? It does. It yeah. absolutely does. There are so many parallels in our lives in the modern day world. Yeah. But certainly for first responders, um, there is a need for you to be operationally ready 24-7. And what we have identified um, and also the work I've done with the Mental Health Commission in New South Wales, working with eminent psychiatrists and other clinicians is if a person is chronically stressed, then they're so vulnerable to the development of trauma-related mental illness. And that was one of the biggest things for me. Um, many years ago, I was diagnosed with PTSD and chronic depression. And there were two critical incidents that re- related to that diagnosis. And I accept that. But the thing that troubled me for so many years was that as an operational police officer who had been involved in an enormous amount of, of, of critical incidents, why was it that those two mm. ended up destroying my psychological health and destroyed my career. And that was something that finally I was able to realise looking at the historical stages of my career. I was so burnt out, I was so chronically stressed at the time these incidents occurred. So as a result, I wasn't able to endure 
the trauma that those incidents caused to my health. Mm. And that's the thing that I see now is, and we know from the Beyond Blue research answering the call, where there's a, a very clear graph in, in the report that, in, that shows the longer a person is in service, the more likely they will develop PTSD-like symptoms. And I equate that to that wonderful little toolkit from the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the mental health continuum, where we go from a state of good psychological health to a state of psychological crisis in four colours. Yeah, right. So the transition from green to red is so parallel to the transition from a good state of psychological and physical health as a first response career, and the longer you stay in it, the worse your physical and psychological health becomes. Yep. So, so then we go, okay, well, what are, the, what are the other parallels? Well, basically, in simplistic terms, a person becomes chronically stressed as their career develops. Yep. It could all take place very quickly, of course, but generally it, their career causes them to become chronically stressed. Yep. So then if we wind that back, Matt, if we say, well, if we, if we accept that, how then do we prevent a person becoming chronically stressed? Mm. Mm. Or how do we reduce the, the number or the severity of the chronic stress? And I believe that we can do that. I absolutely believe we can do that. But we have to educate the people about the consequences on them physically and psychologically of things that, that are causing them to become stressed. Yeah, right. And once we do that, then we we can give people the power to take control of their lives, particularly their physical and their psychological health. Yep. And that's this absolute goldmine of information that we have failed to give to our first responders. Yeah. Yeah, and look, personally looking back at myself, I think I got that wrong because and and I hear it time and time again from people like myself and yourself is this overcommitment to work focus and uh, not really taking the time to make manage yourself and 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 I think there's this recognition that needs to happen with people in these roles that what they do is not normal <laughs> it's yeah. it's not normal work and and it's taxing work and you actually need to maintain yourself like you would a machine Yes. Uh, to to keep doing it. And that's what the work is such a challenge to the ability to function as a normal human being, particularly, say, with shift work, yeah. um, the inability to, to access nutritious foods while working, increased consumption of damaging products like alcohol and caffeine. Yep. And the body can sustain that for a period of time, but but long term, no, it can't. Mm. And and one of the biggest dangers I see is just the the impact on the quality of our sleep. And I also believe that it's the the lack of quality sleep is one of the major contributors to mental ill health across the country today. Yeah, right. But there are ways and means that we can help people get quality sleep or compensate for the lack of it. But if people aren't getting quality sleep, their mental and physical health will deteriorate. There's yep. nothing surer than that. So we have to look at the reality of what first response work is all about. 
we need to pick it to pieces and say, okay, there's a risk, there's a risk, there's a risk, there's a risk. How do we minimise or eliminate the risk? Mm. Yeah, it's 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 all about risk management. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. that sounds like a risk management yeah. plan to me. That, that, <laughs> that, and that's the way we need to approach it. Yeah. Now, just stop having the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. It's it's let's adopt a risk management approach to identify the risks and educate people how they can do it. Yeah. Because you and I both know when we become mentally unwell, a lot of changes develop. And for me, one of the big things is is trying to prove to everybody you're not mentally unwell. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, particularly I think that's almost as consuming as the problem. It is. It be, yeah. it, you become self-absorbed in just proving I'm fine. I'm okay. Trying to hide everything. Correct. Yeah. And we also know the reality is to try and obtain good, effective clinical assistance takes months and months and months mm. to even get in the door. So, again, my hope is that through this walk, we can start to educate and help people understand and empower themselves so that they can endure periods of personal and or professional crisis that will happen to them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think the acknowledgement is that that will happen. There will be those times in those career lines that that intensity is there and that exposure is yes. there. But, yeah, and the more I learn about this space now, you know, I it all seems to me like if you're robust, if you're resilient, like if you've got good resilience yourself as a person – um, across that spectrum of, of everything, not just, you know, physically or, or whatever, but you're taking the time to actually look after your, uh, your head as well. Yeah. That you can, you can endure those moments and those, those events that happen, unfortunately. But, um, yeah. You, you're better placed, Matt. You've got a better chance of doing it. Yeah. But that's also a massive responsibility for the person to accept, to be operationally ready. And we also know that, if you are not operationally ready, not only is your life at risk, but the yeah. life of those around you is at risk. Yeah. So that that carries such a f- phenomenal responsibility to do that. But how are we as a nation recognising and acknowledging the responsibility that you are willing to take on? Mm. I don't think we are. No. And particularly for our volunteers, it's just an expectation of oh, their Australians they'll dig in, Yeah, they'll yeah. be right. Without really uh, acknowledging that somebody has volunteered willingly to place themselves at risk to help others. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So 1996 for you was a pretty pretty intense year. Yeah, I'd say 95. 95? Was, was the start of it. Yeah, yeah right. Um, I was a police officer based at Coffs Harbour and part of the State Protection Support Unit. And uh, in July of 95... That's, the tac- that's a tactical type unit for most... It of, is, yeah. As, so, as it would be understood in most jurisdictions. Yeah, so sort of the... The, the country, yeah. um, uh, what we used to call the SWAS unit. That's right, yeah. Special Weapons Operations Squad. Um, so we were the country cousins, so to speak, <laughs> and completely ill-equipped, ill-trained for 
the potential incidents that may occur, uh, we had no night training, or sorry, we had no training in nighttime operations. We were not supposed to be doing emergency actions at all. Uh, at that stage, we had one bullet resistant vest for 80 police at Coffs Harbour. Wow. The rest had been condemned and never replaced. We had no weapons mounted light systems. We had no DVP, uh, digital voice protection radios. We had no headsets. Uh, we had no weapons mounted light systems on our firearms. Um, and there was a terrible incident that occurred at Crescent Head where uh, Pete Addison and Bob Spears were ambushed and murdered. Yep. And we were called down to assist with the rescue of other people whom the commanders believed the gunman was going to murder. And it was just a the most horrific situation. Mm. And to be involved in that was, was very traumatic. Um, it had a very significant impact on my psychological health. Uh, and particularly at the conclusion of the event where we uh, discovered the body of the gunman that had taken his own life. But, uh, one of the police officers who was murdered, Pete Addison, Pete was a friend of mine. And you know, to, to spend time sitting down with Pete as he lay there in front of me was mm. a very confronting um, experience. But I think the worst of it came post-incident where we we discovered the circumstances of how the ambush and murders took place and you know, simple things like effective radio communication could have made such a difference. And I don't need to go into all the details but mm. the trauma that was exacerbated by certain things that happened in relation to evidence before the inquest or the lack of evidence before the inquest capitulated into a massive degree of conflict between myself and commanders and and it just snowballed and kept getting worse and worse. Retention sort of thing. Yeah, it was just um, it was just horrific. And I, I'm a I think a pretty principled person and I believe that people were failing to recognise Truly that the courage of, of those men at this time and particularly Pete, what he did to try and save his mate, I thought, yeah, this is just so unjust. It's not right. Anyway, that, that continued on for months and then I was involved in the um, in the rescue of a, a little boy who'd been watched down a stormwater pipe and that was pretty much the straw that broke the camel's back as far as my psychological health was concerned. Mm. But again, as part of my analysis of, of what caused me to be so unwell, I remember after that particular incident, I I literally did not sleep for a week because of the, uh, you know, I just couldn't stop hearing the screams of this kid trapped down the drain. And I realise now that, that that week of being completely sleep deprived was one of the major factors in my, my overall breakdown. Yeah, right. I didn't realise that this, the seriousness of how being so sleep deprived was going to have on my health. Yeah. and But now obviously I have that knowledge. So... And then, then things just all turned to poo after that and I ended up becoming suicidal and, and, and deciding to end my life. Um, and I left work, uh, was put in a car and taken home on the 6th of October 1996 and that night taken to hospital. Um, yeah, the, the support of, of my wife was extraordinary, the support of colleagues was extraordinary. Yeah. And then it was a matter of um, 
agreeing to see the psychiatrist three days a week, placed on extremely strong antipsychotic medication, uh, which helped me just sleep and yeah, and that was a long, slow recovery process that I worked really, really hard at doing. Uh, sadly, the psychiatrist left town, so I was left to sort of develop my own recovery plan. Yeah, right. Um, and I all I wanted to do was just go back to work. Yeah. Because my career meant so much to me, my yep. sense of worth, my purpose, all these things we know about. And then um, in February of 98, it's 25 years this month. Yeah. I got a phone call from police headquarters saying, congratulations, Al, your last day of work was two weeks ago. And I couldn't believe it because I'd never applied for a discharge. I, I didn't want to be discharged. I, I wanted to go back to work. And that was it, career over. So after 20 years, it was just a, a wow. phone call to say, see you later. Um, you're no longer of any use to us. So it wasn't it wasn't a pleasant time of my life, Matt. No. Um, from ninety five through to ninety eight, um, it was a period of intense crisis, and that's a long time to be in that state, it, isn't it? It was, and obviously the recovery didn't wasn't concluded after I was yeah. discharged. Yeah. That set me back so far psychologically yeah. and physically. It it took a long time to recover, and I don't. And as, as you know, that feel the same, Matt. We don't want people to go through what we've gone through. Mm. We know how horrific it is. We know the damage it does to us personally. We know the damage it does to our families, to mm. our loved ones. We don't want that. So we, I think that's what puts a fire in our belly to help people not get to that stage. Yeah. Because we know the, the destruction it will cause. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I, I I say this all the time, but I look at my kids and what and my wife and what they've been through, and I and I, I still blame myself for it. I know mm. I shouldn't, but uh, it's really hard not to. But you you look at it and just go, God, they've been through he- they've been through hell. Yes, because this didn't get ma- like this wasn't managed well, and no, and I. And I think one of the saddest things to me is, Matt, if we had the knowledge that we have now back then, yeah. it would have been different. Yeah. We would have known there was so much we could do ourselves to to stabilise yeah. a situation of crisis. And once we stabilise it, then we've got a chance of, of recovering much, much quicker yeah. or enduring that period of crisis until we can get proper clinical intervention yeah. yeah but also the key is well if we are operationally ready yeah we're far better placed to not be impacted as severely as we would have if we're not in a good state of physical and or psychological health yeah that's the key i think it is. yeah it's and, and the more and more i learn about it like it's just utterly so important to to track yourself and and to track the people around you that you're working with too because yes. You know, I, I think we share a similar opinion about the tokenistics of just saying, you know, I'm always here for you or, you know, how you're travelling and nothing beyond that. Yep. Um, but having that actual meaningful engagement of an observation of someone that's close to you or you're working with, don't have to be a mate, but someone that you're working with yep. or you're associated with and seeing those stress cracks or... Yeah, those little indicators that I think, you know, we could probably pick them pretty well now, but, yep. um, you know, and actually meaningfully chasing that person up. And, That's right. And I know you said you've got people in your 
you've had people in your time that have, you know, really been quite actively engaged in following you up when they see, you know, the, yeah. the little wobbles. Yeah, and, and the difference it makes, Matt, you know, I don't like it when people say, oh, I'm here for you. Yeah, I go, well, if you're here for me and you're saying you care about me, yeah. how, how are you trying to help me? Rather than just say, well, I'm here for you or, gee whiz, they never said anything. They never spoke up. They didn't mm. ask for any help. You know, blaming somebody who may have taken their own life, I go, that's just abhorrent. Mm. And, you know, we discussed before this Mental Health Commission uh, of Canada, a mental health continuum card, where you see the changes in a person and it's a really good indicator of their state of psychological health. And as you said before, you know, I've, I've had a, a great mate of mine and also a clinical colleague who would ring me up every day, sometimes twice a day. So, mate, what's going on? What have you done today? How are you feeling? What are you doing with this? What have you done about that? Um, mm. And just really not only checking in but helping guide me back to what we call the green zone. Yeah. And it's not just a, oh, well, mate, you, you give me a call when you feel like it and let me know if you're feeling like crap. No, they're, they're you'll, you'll never make that call. No, of course you don't. <laughs> of course you don't. Um, yeah. But they're being so proactive and so caring. Yeah. And ge yeah, genuinely. It's, and you, it's you, can, genuine. you can feel it. Yeah. yeah. And look, I know it's not for everyone. Like I, I've no doubt been really awkward to be around and at times and, and probably still am. And, and I don't think that genuine involvement in checking in on you is is for everyone it's probably not for everyone and not everyone can probably do it but there's enough people around you that you know <laughs> that that would be able to do that and yeah and, and, that, and that gets back to you as a person matt because as we know and for those who have experienced pdsd and, and trauma related mental illnesses one thing that i found you try so hard to do is not show any signs of mental ill health yeah, yeah. or mental distress you're great at masking it. And for somebody to question your mental health can be very offensive. Yeah. And you can become very defensive about it, saying, how dare you? There's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. So we need to be prepared for that if we are going to take that proactive step to try and engage with somebody. Yep. We need to be aware of that. And you know, the Mental Health Commission of Canada developed two courses one was called the working mind there's others called the working mind for first responders right and the supervisory course helps you engage with people that you can see uh their mental health is changing yeah, from okay. a positive state to a negative state so we do have great capability to help educate people again who aren't suffering psychological distress to engage with people who are suffering from psychological distress but again it has to be genuine yeah this has to come from a personal perspective but also organisationally we need as, as organisations to help educate and motivate managers, supervisors and the like mm. to, to take on these challenges when somebody's mental health is declining. Yeah, because it's, it's awkward. I don't – yeah, it is, it is a tough gig. It's a big ask to actually – uh, take that step to be it is involved in it because, yeah. uh, as you said, people get defensive and, you know, no doubt the state they're in there thinking they're doing a cracking job hiding it from everyone yep. and all of a sudden someone's recognised something and they're going, oh, no, yep. 
is this the end of my career or exactly. whatever? And, exactly. and you know, I, I know, um, you know, when I was unraveling, I, I would have lied. I would have whatever just to try and mask it yes. uh, even more uh, just so people around me didn't know. Yeah. And, you know, but inside I was a mess. And, and, you, and you do become terrified of losing what you hold dear. Yeah. And I th- particularly for first responders, their career is their life. Yep. Or the role they play as a volunteer is so important to them. Yeah. And the thought of having that taken is terrifying. Yeah. And that's why so many will not speak up yep. because of the fear of what can happen. But we also see, uh, you know, I've experienced where I see police commanders who have been so genuine in their care, they are so engaging with people that aren't well and they save their careers. Yeah, right. But others who go, nah. Yeah, they're a liability. Unit, so get yeah. rid of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a long way to go, Matt. We know yeah. that. Yeah. And I think this is where the heart-to-heart walk is Is the first steps in a very long journey. Yeah. But what a what a great thing to be involved in. Oh, yeah. And and what opportunities it's going to uh, going to have for us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've you've been an ambassador for or, and or represented or been in positions of so many different mental health uh, organisations or initiatives or agencies and, um, you know, to have your spectrum of knowledge that you've gained from that as an ambassador for us is fantastic and, and you know, as you said, like it's it's such a great cause and it's something that I, I really love getting these messages on Instagram or whatever it's from, from these posts that go out about this podcast from people I don't even know saying, you know, wow, that, that last one, like and it will be an episode that I – didn't even realise someone would pick something yeah. up from and they go, that really helped me. And I, particularly, I love it when they say I listen to it at work because yep. I'm thinking that's that's perfect, <laughs> you know, on night shift or whatever, yeah. driving around. But, you know, to hear people just go, you know, that really hit a, like, hit a chord with me and, and I now recognise something else or I'm, you know, or even if it's just made them sense check themselves or, you know, just recognise one tiny little element, yep. I just go, that's why this is yep. happening. That's That's my little part of this big, this big journey that everyone's yeah. on, and and, I, and and it really gives me a, a huge boost to to see that. And the irony is, Matt, um, even though I was discharged in in most unpleasant circumstances, yeah. and I did, I, I I became very bitter and twisted against the police force. Yeah. Uh, but then some years ago, when I was the Beyond Blue ambassador, uh, Scotty Weber, the now the yeah. uh, head of uh, the Police Federation of Australia, who was then the president of the New South Wales Police Association. Uh, got hold of my Beyond Blue video and they used to use that as a presentation in the police mental health intervention team training. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then somebody said, oh, no, Al's back in Sydney. Why don't you have a yarn to him and see if he wants to become involved? Um, and I think Scotty thought, oh, no, after Al's discharge, yeah. that's the last thing he wanted to do. <laughs> but he, he spoke to me actually after a National Police Remembrance Day service and he sort of sort – of, raise the issues, oh, I don't suppose there's any chance. And I said, oh, I would love to. It would give me so much – it would mean so much personally that I can contribute to the police yeah. to help them not get to where I got to. And so I was involved with the, the mental health intervention team for a long time doing right. presentations. And then I still do presentations for the New South Wales Police uh, Branch Welfare Officers, part of their, their training program. And just to, to give these people this knowledge, which is so basic, but it's so powerful, and the difference it's making is just extraordinary. Mm. And, and uh, you know, for me, knowledge 
is understanding and understanding is acceptance. And to be able to give back to yeah. people I value so so highly. It's uh, still, your identity still there. It is. I think, yeah, you no. know, and the, you're very loyal to them no matter what, yeah. you know, how they've treated you. I yeah. think I don't know what it is about that. Those. But I think that's, that's again, first responders, yeah. just this just willingness to care for people yeah. because yeah. They, they give us stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it's that's funny that you've sort of said that attitudinal change with yourself because I've sort of gone through similar things, I guess, against the organisations. More, I've had a lot of problems with the workers' compensation system, so that's yep. – realistically uh, ultimately yes it's their issue but it's it's the insurer sort of problems but even when I was really not well uh, and very early in my treatment one of the first things I started talking to um, people about was how do I get myself in front of you know um, students down at the academy and yeah. and say look th- I never thought this would happen to me and you ne- you know you know you need to be aware of this stuff and manage it better and I like I was still, I was still really unwell. But yeah. I was all I could think about was, I've got to stop this happening to someone else. Yeah. And how can I get like I've got to make that happen. I've got yeah. to get involved in it. Like I, it would have been a, it would have been a train wreck of a presentation <laughs> to have me at that stage, yeah. you know, down there trying to help people. But uh, you know, it, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, I could not stop um, focusing on, um, you know, certainly focusing on myself. Uh, and my family, but it was just burning at me. Just yeah. how do I help people understand from my former roles in emergency services and the police? How do I how do I share this? Yeah, and uh, and and maybe stop one person going down this yeah. path. But that's and again, Matt, that innate quality of you as a human being, and as a first responder, you know things can go wrong, and you want to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's a beautiful part about you and and others who who share the same vision. Yeah. To to stop people's lives being destroyed through the work that they do. Yeah, and it's important work, and it's you know honourable work. But it is. It's taxing. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I I think I heard an analogy the other day of you know everyone knows what to do with a uh, you know strain, a sprained ankle. Uh, but no one really knows what to do with a strained brain, and yeah. you know. And the other analogy I heard, you know, you don't drive your car till it's broken. You you preventatively service it, and that's that, right. That sort of philosophy, I guess, is I, I think what I didn't do. I think I just kept going as hard as I possibly could yep. for as long as I could until you know the, the oil ran out and then yeah, she seized right. up. <laughs> and, that, and that's the the analogy. You need to keep your car operationally ready. Yeah. We need to keep ourselves operationally ready. Yeah. And so how do we how do we service ourselves? Yeah. And that's because we have to be proactive about our physical and importantly our psychological health. Yeah. And know the things that will impact upon them and and ensure that we are maintaining ourselves as best we can. So we don't put diesel in a petrol car. Mm. When we when when we're not traveling so well, we don't add alcohol yeah into our systems to try and improve it yeah we have to understand the damage that alcohol will do when we're going through a period of crisis yeah um we have to ensure that we understand the importance of of quality sleep that we don't just accept sleep deprivation as part of the job yeah and that that, that it won't impact us of course it will impact us so all these factors we we need to help people understand how mm. to how to maintain operational readiness. Yeah, yeah. And little like as you said before, 
stuff can change pretty slowly and you, you start to get used to masking stuff or used to things going on. And, you know, like I, I thought it was normal to wake up drenched multiple times a week for years and years and years. Like I'm talking like drenched to the point you'd have to tear the sheets off and wash them that yeah. day because it was like someone bought a bucket of water on it. Yeah. And... That, that was just part of my life. Like, I was just like, ah, oh, damn it. I've got to wash the damn things again this morning. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I'd get up, tired, you know, wrecked. <laughs> yep. Go, go, go again. And, yeah. uh, you know, two or three days later, it'd be the same story. And that was just what I just thought that was normal. Yeah. But because it, it came on so gradually. And, you know, now that I've had time to stop and look back at a lot of those, like, that's just one little thing in a whole spectrum of things that had crept into my life. Yeah. And you look back and go, wow, that that was not okay. No. no. And the, the other part about it is now that I've been able to stop and look back too is you look back and go, that job was wild. Like yeah. the things you do, uh, it's it's not working in a shop. It's not working, you know, it's, you know you've got to recognise how challenging that role, yeah. those roles are and, yeah. and, and give them that due credit and look after yourself. And understand, you know, the, the impact it does have on your brain and how your brain responds, yeah. how your body responds and how to get it back into balance. You know, I, I believe that significant incidents that cause a significant impact on your psychological health causes your, your body essentially to become unbalanced. Mm. So we need to learn how to get it back into balance. And stuff we used to poo-hoo like yoga and meditation yeah. and those things – you go, oh my gosh, they are so beneficial to you yeah. to keep your brain and, and body in balance. So that's what I think is very exciting is is the research that's proving how beneficial activities can be mm. that are so non-traditional as a first response lifestyle, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. You know, I, as I said, I joined up the cops at 19 years of age in 1977 and I think of the amount of alcohol that, we used to consume yeah. it. <laughs> cops. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> but that was just part of part of our lifestyle. Yeah, it was. It was part of the job back yeah. then. Yeah. And you know, um, debriefing was <laughs> was down the pub. Um, yeah. And consuming massive amounts of alcohol. Yeah. And I and I'm so guilty of using alcohol as a self medication when I realised I was really suffering from PTSD and things. Mm. But but we need to capture that knowledge. We don't. We don't need to bury it. We need to capture that knowledge, dissect it, and util utilize that knowledge to help for the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what the walk's all about: sharing that information it and, is. and uh, you know, realistically coordinating all of that effort. And you know, let's do some good. Yeah, we and, will. And and as was said a, a lot of times yesterday. We've done enough research. There's enough reports out there yeah. to see what's broken yes. and what needs fixing. Let's yeah. just get on with it and get commitments to fix this stuff. Yep. And and implement programs and, and proper effective training as a proactive approach mm. to help people prepare and be, and endure the careers, endure the, mm. the jobs that they're going to do. Going to do. But recognize the contribution that first responders make to Australia. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the recognition piece too is, is important for people to feel valued even when they're, like when they're struggling, I yeah. think, and and to give them a, a bit more of that, um, I don't know, we call it en uh, energy to, uh, I'm not sure, that's not the right way to put it. There's, there's definitely a 
piece behind being recognised for what you've done that that helps you? Yeah, I think recognised, and I think Matt, I'd use the word respected. Yeah. Acknowledge and respected for the the contribution you have made and or are making. And as human beings, we all need a sense of worth. We need a sense of purpose. And certainly, from my experience as a first responder, that job, doing being a cop, gave me such enormous sense of worth and sense of purpose mm. because of the ability to interact with people who were uh, experiencing changes to their life. So, and again, I think people can become very dismissive of a person's sense of worth and sense of purpose. And we have seen you know, sometimes the despicable way that people are disengaged from the service. There's no consideration for their contrib- contribution that they have made mm. and the loss of sense of worth and purpose that they will face. It's just a matter of, oh, just give them another job. That, that's, that's all they need. Well, <laughs> no, it's not. Because once you lose something that you hold so dear, it creates a void. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of anything will fill that void. It takes something very, very special to fill that void. Yeah. And for me, I spent many, many, many years trying to regain my sense of worth and purpose. Um, and and I think one of the things that, that continues to re to restock my sense of worth and purpose is being involved in organisations like the Heart to Heart Walk yep. because of, of how much value it can give to, uh, to people to organisations and to the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, it's a powerful piece to be giving back. And, yeah, it is. Yeah. Look, we've had a great long chat. Yeah, it's been really yeah. enjoyable, Matt. Thank you very much for your time today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, look, I, I, it, the, to have someone of your calibre on this little <laughs> podcast, I, it's still blowing my mind even though it's happening right now. But, uh, look, thanks very much. Oh, but, mate, I, yeah. um, it's been an honour to meet you, mate, and spend time <laughs> with you and I, I can't uh, – can't wait to spend more time with with you and and look, may I also say to your beautiful wife and children, can I thank them for the support that they have given you, and and they can be shining examples to other families that mm. you've just got to hang in, no matter what, no matter how bad it is, you've got to hang in because it's so worth it. Yeah. Um. So it's it's not just the first responders as we know, it's it's those that are there with them yeah. uh, that we need to be considered off as well. But to your wife and your your girls. Yeah, utmost respect. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I echo exactly that because I, I would not be here doing this today if they if they weren't there. Yeah, I, no, I, I just, know exactly I, what you're saying. I wouldn't be. Yeah, so uh, it, it's important. Yeah. And, and they're often forgotten. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a big picture and, uh, yeah, unfortunately they're not always in it. So I did forget to ask you about your song. Yeah, I, I really like a song called Carry You By the Teskey Brothers, yeah. a band out of Melbourne, and just the words – that song really resonate with me in relation to the heart to heart walk. Uh, along the way, we'll we are willingly going to be carrying people who aren't travelling all that well. Yeah. But we want them to be a part of it. It's like putting them on your shoulder and and carrying them along on this journey. And I think that would be the the song that I choose. Yeah, to. good. Yeah, well, it's all be in the playlist now. Okay, thank, fantastic. Thank you very much. Pleasure, mate. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. 
That's www.heartthenumber2heartwalk.org or just Google it. 